0: So, And I didn't, I didn't plan it this way, but the Olympics is actually a really good backdrop to what we're talking about this morning because we're going to talk about God's heart for the nations and the way God is a God of all peoples and longs for all people everywhere to come to know Him. And I want to launch from uh, a passage that we looked at last week. If you've been tracking with us through Missions Month, we started by looking at creation. Uh, then we moved through last week to looking at the calling of Abraham, who became Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And uh, if you can recall any of the words that God said to Abraham, you remember He said, Abraham, I want you to go and I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And part of that blessing, the very last line that God said to Abraham was that all peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. There's this international promise at the end that, that God is somehow going to form a global community through Abraham. All peoples of the earth are eventually going to be blessed through you. And right there, Almost at the beginning of the biblical story, God reveals that He's a God of the nations. He is a God who has a heart for all peoples. And His purpose is greater than just Abraham and greater than just Israel. It's for all people everywhere. Then as the biblical story progresses, you you sort of see almost the opposite trend taking place. You see God very specifically passing His blessing through Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. And He chooses not all nations, but just one nation. He chooses the nation of Israel, and he says, you alone are going to get my laws. You alone do I reveal my decrees to. Israel had a special and unique relationship with God. They were his privileged possession. He elected them of all nations on earth. And you can, as the story moves forward, you can be forgiven for wondering, what happened to Genesis 12? What happened to this idea that God's supposed to be a God of all nations, that he wants all people everywhere to know him, and yet he, he doesn't start revealing himself in various ways to all nations. He reveals himself to one nation to israel quite uniquely and distinctively so i want to look uh, start with a passage that reveals a little bit of this relationship between israel and the other nations that discloses a little bit of what god's heart is in deuteronomy chapter four if you have a bible Flick open there this morning. We're just going to start with a few verses in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And this is uh, Moses speaking to Israel. they on the edge of entering into the promised land, and he's giving them a big pep talk before they finally cross the river and enter into this land God's given them. He says in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 4, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us, whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? You start to see that God's plan for Israel was not just for Israel. You start to see the way that God, even when He's dealing with Israel, has a plan and a purpose to move through Israel to get to all the nations. Even the land that God led Israel into, the land of Canaan, it's this highly visible international land bridge between three continents. It's like being in a goldfish bowl on the international scene. God didn't intend to just deal with Israel away in a dark corner somewhere. He didn't intend to take them off and just have this personal little relationship with them in a far off place. God wanted his relationship with Israel to be like a a, a drama being played out on an international stage to which all the nations are invited to come and witness. The Old Testament's like a theater. God and Israel interacting and the nations assembled watching what's going on. From the very beginning, God says, the rest of these nations are going to watch what happens to you. They're going to watch how faithful you are. They're going to watch how unfaithful you are. They're going to see the highs and the lows. At times, the nations are going to be God's instruments of judgment on Israel. They're going to come and conquer Israel. And God even refers to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant, whom I send to execute judgment on Israel when that's needed. Chris Wright paraphrases John 3.16 in this way. He said, for God so loved the world that he chose Israel. And that gets you thinking. God's purpose, right from the very beginning, for the world, was Israel. God chose Israel for the sake of all nations. The nations, He wanted to hear what was going on. He wanted them to observe Israel's conduct, and eventually that they would say, what kind of nation is this that has such an amazing God? What kind of nation could have such an incredible Savior, such an incredible deliverer as the Lord Yahweh of the Israelites? And as the biblical story tracks through, you start to get the feeling that the nations have even more of a role here than just particip- than just spectators. They become participants in this drama. They're not just observers of what God's doing with Israel. You start to get the feeling that God actually has a plan for these other nations and not just for Israel. So flick over to Psalm 47. The first three verses of Psalm 47 say this, Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. Here are the nations. They're not just passive spectators now. They're actually applauding Yahweh. They're actually benefiting from what He's doing. Somehow the nations are pictured as sharing in Israel's blessings. The nations are recipients somehow of God's goodness. They're receiving some some benefit and out of gratitude they're worshipping. They're applauding Israel's God. And the role of the nations gets more and more intense as the scriptures go on. Psalm 67, just a few uh, psalms later, verse 3 says, May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. So here the nations aren't just spectators. And they're not just sharing Israel's blessings. They're now worshiping Israel's God which would be an incredible thing in a day when deities were very tribal. The Ammonites have their God, and the Babylonians have their God, and the Assyrians have their God, and so on. And and gods don't encroach in other gods' territories. It's very localized. And yet here's the psalmist saying, no, no, Yahweh is actually the God of all nations. He is a God who claims all people for Himself. His boundaries extend beyond those of Israel. And eventually all nations everywhere are going to come to worship Him. And then you get to Isaiah 19, which I think is maybe the most significant missional text in the whole Bible, but but so seldom heard and spoken in that context. I want to read you just a few verses from Isaiah 19. And before I do, just a couple of things to get your head around what's being said here. At the time that Isaiah is writing, the two great superpowers of the day are Egypt and Assyria both arch rivals of Israel, these are the enemies, these are the people outside of God's family, the ones who seek to harm God's people, they are the great evil, the great foe of God's chosen people. And here, Isaiah says in in chapter 19, verse 23, in that day, pointing to some future time when God intervenes, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, listen to this, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. You see what God's saying? He's no longer just uniquely addressing Israel as his people, now he's including other nations, Within the scope of that blessing, he's saying, it's not just Israel who's my people, now Egypt are also my people. They are my handiworkers. Syria are my precious and chosen children. The nations here, they're not just spectators, they're not just worshipping Yahweh. Now they're even being included in Israel's identity. Now they're being drawn right into Zion, right into Jerusalem. They're worshipping in the temple of God and included among God's chosen people. This is the signpost that we get in the Old Testament of what God's intentions are in regard to the nations. He's not leaving them. He's not abandoning them. He's using Israel to get to them. And He's saying, the day is coming when all nations are going to worship Me. Yes, His covenant now is with Israel, but the day is coming when the nations are going to gather and they will all be counted as the chosen people of Yahweh. Now, in the Old Testament, that's only pointed to it never, it never comes to fruition through the pages of the Old Testament. And you have to wonder what some of the Israelites must have thought as they sung these words, these psalms. Clap your hands, all your nations. The, the nations are going to come and worship God, because it wasn't happening. And they must have thought, how is God going to bring this about? How is this possibly going to happen? Because the nations right now are well out of the blessings and the promises of Israel. And they couldn't have foreseen that time. We're going to talk about it next week when God brought this promise to fulfillment through Jesus. And yet what God reveals right here in the Old Testament is that he has such a heart for the nations. He has such a heart for all people. He is the desire of nations, the scripture says, the one who longs to be exalted over all the earth, exalted over all peoples everywhere and draw people to himself from every tribe, every tongue, every people group, every ethnicity on the face of the earth. The God whom we serve is a global God. He's not restricted to any one people group. He didn't just reach the nations because it didn't work out with Israel. Now, some people think that. Well, he gave it a crack with Israel, didn't go too well, so now we're going to try it with another group, or or a few groups. No, right from the beginning, Genesis 12, his heart is for the nations. His desire is to reach the nations. Now, it's a stage-by-stage process, but God's heart has always been for all peoples. And so, if we're following and we're serving this God, this Yahweh, same God of the Old Testament who is also the God of the New Testament, then shouldn't that be our heart too? Shouldn't we also be global Christians, globally minded Christians, international Christians, who share that heart that God has for all nations, all people everywhere. It's so easy to be ethnocentric Christians, tied up and caught up with what God is doing among our people and right here, and that's good and valuable and yet God calls us to lift up our eyes and says, look at what I'm doing among the peoples. Get a global perspective. Get an international perspective. Not just on nation states, but on people groups. That's a better way to think about it. People groups, ethnicities. Because today, especially with migration, you have all kinds of people groups spreading out beyond their homeland. So that you can have more Jews now, for example, living in New York City than in Jerusalem. So if you want to reach Jews, you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. You can go to many cities around the world. And the case in point is Auckland. We're a multicultural, we're a melting pot of different nations. The nations are here. The nations have come to us. And we can reach out cross-culturally, across ethnic borders, right here in our own backyard. And so we should. And many are, even in our church, engaged in reaching out to the nations, right here in the city of Auckland. But as you lift up your eyes... And you start to get a global perspective of what is happening and the state of the gospel, the state of Christian mission worldwide, there are still some pretty stark facts. There are still at this moment 28% of people in the world who do not have access, ready access, to the gospel. That means they can't just turn up to a church on Sunday. They don't have the luxury of, of doing what you're doing this morning, just taking a drive, to a church where they can hear the gospel preached. They can't just flick on a Christian radio station or a Christian television channel and hear someone who's who's teaching from God's Word or presenting the truth of the gospel. They don't have access to Christian literature that would tell them how they can come to know God. Many of them don't even have copies of the Bible in their own language. There is still a large percentage of the population that just does not have access to what we have access to. They don't have access to the gospel. There are 39.5 percent of the world's population members of ethnic groups with no viable churches. So no leader-producing, self-sustaining, church-planting churches that can do the work of evangelism on the ground. And there are in total, best estimate, 6,721 unreached ethnic people groups still in the world you say what's an unreached group how do you define that well generally and there is no perfect measure but generally it's a a people group where there are less than two percent of evangelical Christians evangelicals just being Bible believing cross-focused salvation by grace Christians less than two percent evangelical Christians so there's a huge number of people in the world that simply don't have access to the gospel and are still in the category of being unreached, the least reached people groups. So where are these people in the world? Well, I've got a map I'm going to put up on screen that will show you exactly where they are. And you can see by that map that there's a huge concentration of unreached groups, the red areas. And this is an area we call the 1040 window. It's the area between 10 and 40 degrees north of the equator. It is the area in the globe where there are the most number of unreached people groups on earth, also the area where some of the poorest countries in the world are. This is where the real uh, urgent task of world evangelism is. Yes, there is a lot of good work to be done right here at home, no question. And yes, God needs workers in many different nations, but in the whole scheme of world missions, when you ask where is the gospel not yet penetrated, where are the least reached people groups? It's right here in the 1040 window. And there's a reason that there's such a heavy concentration of unreached peoples in this particular band of the earth. It's because of these next few maps, which show you firstly where the world's Christians are. And you can see a pretty heavy concentration in North America, and Europe, and parts of Asia, and China there. And then the next slide where the world's Muslims are concentrated, and they're right there in that 1040 window. That's the heaviest concentration of Islam. And then the world's Buddhists, mainly in Eastern Asia, and the world's Hindus, heavy concentration in India. So in the scheme of all that, this is why the gospel's difficult to penetrate in these areas, because these are the traditional strongholds of the other great faiths of the the world, particularly Islam. These are the strongholds of the other religions Uh, Against which Christianity seeks to bring the gospel and they're tough to reach places. No question. They're not easy mission fields to get to There's uh, language barriers There are the non-western countries. So there's that divide to cross They are hard places. There are social persecution in some of these countries. Sometimes there's political persecution that happens Not easy places to raise a family for example And because of that because of that understandable issue there's a huge imbalance in the number of missionaries worldwide because it's difficult to get into these places, we have at the moment only, best estimate, about 2 to 5% of missionaries globally working in the 1040 window, working among these unreached people groups. For every 1 million Muslims, there are less than 3 Christian missionaries. So that's the problem. And it's understandable, but it does lead to a huge imbalance of Christian resources going into the areas that most need to be reached. And as a church, we need to be praying and seeking the Lord to raise up more workers who are prepared to take the gospel to some really hard-to-reach places, some really tough-to-reach places on earth. I think if the apostle Paul was here, he'd be asking, where is the gospel not yet gone? Where are the frontiers of world evangelization? And you'd be looking in that global band and saying, what can we do, how can we go, who can we send, who will be sent? to go and take the gospel to some of these areas. Now you look at all that, and it seems a bit grim, doesn't it? It seems like, gosh, there's this huge task ahead of us, we're not even quite sure how to get mobilized, the church seems to be in a really bad place, and we're not penetrating. In fact, it's not actually that bad at all. There's some really good news, and that is that the evangelical movement, evangelical Christianity is booming worldwide. It is absolutely booming. Evangelicalism is growing twice as fast as Islam, and three times faster than Hinduism. There are, at the moment, 100,000 new Christians every single day, and 4,500 new Christian churches every single week. <laughs> that's fantastic! Now, you say, hang on, that doesn't make sense, because I don't see that happening here. It doesn't sound like New Zealand, does it? You don't really see that happening around us, and that's why most Westerners sort of scratch their heads when you throw up these figures. It's because it's not happening in the West. So the Western church is struggling. It is on the decline. The Protestant majority in North America is is just wavering. It's about 52%, I think, right now of, of professing Christians in North America. Just about to tuck under the 50 mark. And yet in other parts of the globe, the gospel is booming. Christianity has grown by more than 300 million believers in the past 10 years. That's a huge amount of growth only about 10 million of these Christians are from North America and Europe, or from the West, we could say, because that would include New Zealand and Australia as well. Only 10 million of 300 million. The rest of them, 290 million, are from the developing world, or the majority world, or as the new term is now, the global South. The whole Christian centre of gravity, and it's important to be aware of this as a globally-minded Christian, the whole centre of the Protestant movement, is shifting south and it's shifting east, particularly to Latin America and parts of Asia and Africa. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Latin America, in 1990, there were 50,000 Protestants. In 1980, 20 million Protestants. In 2000, 100 million Protestants. It's incredible growth in a short space of time. What about China? In 1950, there were one million Christians in China. Sounds like a lot. Today, 85-plus million Christians in China. The underground church in China is absolutely booming. There are 30,000 new believers every single day in China. That's what's happening around the world. The whole center of the Protestant movement is shifting away from its traditional strongholds in Europe and North America towards the global south. Now, New Zealand's not part of the global south, even though, even though we're about as far south as you can go. That's, what, that's what's confusing. People think south, they think that must be Australia or New Zealand. No, we're technically part of the west. We're a western country. But these generally southern hemisphere parts of the globe, large parts of Asia and Africa and Latin America, is where the real growth is happening right now. About 62.5% of all Christians now live in the global south, The center of Christianity is shifting east as well, about 115 million Christians in East Asia. And the really exciting thing is that the majority world, the developing world, now sends out about 70% of the world's mission force. So these countries that have traditionally been the targets of evangelism are now turning around and evangelizing back their Western neighbors. They're sending missionaries back, and in fact sending 70% of all missionaries that are now sent out coming from the majority world. That's exciting. We can be excited about these changes that are taking place. Yes, there are challenges with that. It's no secret. And some of the struggles in places like Africa, for example, are that the church can typically be a mile wide and an inch deep. They struggle with discipleship. That's to be expected when you have huge numbers of people coming to the lord it's tough to disciple to produce leaders to really push people's roots down deep you can end up with a lot of very shallow christians which is why you have organizations like the langham institute dedicated to resourcing and equipping and empowering church leaders and and theologians and academics in the majority world in africa so that these people will be raised up to provide depth of leadership over the emerging church in that part of the world but it's exciting And here are the faces of Christianity in the 21st century. Very different to the ones that you might expect. Very different to the people that have been the face of the Protestant movement for hundreds and hundreds of years. And with this change in cultural and global focus, there are new voices that are coming to the fore. These are the new theologians. These are the new church leaders. These are the new Christian writers. It's not all coming out of the West. These are the ones who right now are carrying the evangelical movement, our movement, forward, who are carrying the Protestant movement forward. And it's fantastic, with that come new emphases. There's a new emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit, for example, which has long been underplayed in the West, now emerging from parts of Africa. You have the African Study Bible, which you can get, I think, in New Zealand. Uh, I think in English translation, or translated into many languages, but with specific study tools, for uh, being a Christian in an African country with some of the unique challenges that they face. So God's at work among the nations. And just as the church is waning in one part of the world, God's raising up people in another part. Just as the gospel is struggling somewhere, God will bring new life to it. And He's working in many dark corners of the world and many places that we would not uh, even be aware of His work and the power of the Spirit behind many closed doors and diplomatic situations. God is at work, he's at work in every people group, he's at work in every nation, and he's at work globally, drawing all people to himself. And as followers of this God, we need to learn to lift up our eyes. Jesus said the fields are ripe for harvest. He wasn't just talking about the fields outside Albany, he was talking about the fields of the nations, the fields of all peoples, the harvest spans the entire globe. And the best first step we can take is just becoming aware. Just getting out of our little bubble and insular Kiwi Christianity and just being aware. Go and check out websites like Joshua Project and see what's happening among some of these unreached people groups. See what God is doing around the world. We can get involved, and we can get involved right here. We can get involved in Auckland ministering cross-culturally. We can get involved internationally by praying for missionaries, by praying for those who are ministering overseas. We have people in our church. We have Maxine and Andrew Finlay who have a heart to be based in Vanuatu in a couple of years' time, ministering in a dark, dark corner of the South Pacific with really tribal, primitive cults over there. That's where they feel God's calling them. And as a church, we want to back them. We want to get behind them. We want to pray for them. They're our people taking the gospel offshore. We can pray for missionaries like that. Families, I'd encourage you, get yourselves a little globe and pray for a nation over mealtime. Pick a country, pick a people group, and just say a prayer. You don't even know what's happening in that country. You might not know personally any missionary who's there, but just pray for that people group, that the gospel would be shared, that people would come to know Christ, that the light of the kingdom would start to dawn in some of these dark places. Start to become a globally aware family. We can participate financially. We can contribute to missionaries that are ministering here in Auckland, New Zealand, and overseas. We can contribute by giving to the local church. And from our missions budget, we support people like this. And it may even be that God is calling us to go. You, know, and you never want to overlook that fact, that God may, even this morning, be gently nudging someone here and saying, I don't just want you to pray and to give money. I'm calling you to go, and I'm setting you aside for this work in another part of the world. Kiwis make great missionaries. They really do. They're independent spirit, you know, good Kiwi passport, can travel well. Kiwis make very good, very mobile, very uh, resourceful missionaries. And it may well be that God is just placing a calling on your heart and saying, this is what I want for you. Might not even know where it is yet, but just be open. If he's placing a heart for a particular people group or a particular country on your heart, Don't sideline and marginalize that voice, but stay open to it. And it may just be that even from within our community, God is raising up men and women to go to the ends of the earth, the other ends of the earth from this one, and take the flame of the gospel with them. The great Christian preacher and author John Stott said this, His authority on earth allows us to dare to go to all nations. His authority in heaven gives us our only hope of success, And His presence with us leaves us no other choice. We serve a God of the nations who is globally minded. We're part of a faith community that stretches across a multitude of nations, brothers and sisters from uh, tons of different countries. And we have an invitation to be part of this great calling and commissioning to gather the nations in, to gather the nations to the gospel. Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And we are now workers in God's harvest field, going about that task of drawing the nations in. No longer are they scattered, now they are being gathered in. And God is saying, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his harvest field. That's the calling we have as individuals and as a church to be globally minded and to participate in that calling of taking the gospel to all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. Shall we pray?